Good morning, Berean. We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible, you can be turning to chapter 2. As a young boy growing up in church, one of my memories is once a year, we would have a missionary conference. And the way the missionary conference would work is every night of the week, we would come to church. Can you believe that? Every night. And there would be a missionary speaker that would come and give a report of their ministry. These were missionaries that our church supported. They would come from all over the world. Some nights the speaker was more interesting than, than other nights. But my favorite night was Saturday because besides the speaker, it was international dinner night. Everybody it was a huge potluck. Everybody brought some food, and I loved it as a kid. In today's message, Paul is going to give a missionary report back to his home church in the city of Jerusalem. Before we get into chapter 2 of Galatia, just a little review. Paul has been a Christian now for 14 years. Remember last week we looked at his conversion on the road to Damascus and how he had a brief visit with Ananias, but then he went out to the Arabia Desert for three years. And the Lord himself revealed the gospel message directly to Paul. He wasn't influenced by many of the men, men who had gone before him, but he got the gospel message directly from Jesus Christ. He then was commissioned by God to go out and be a missionary to the Gentiles. So he took Barnabas and he went out and he made missionary trips in the Galatia area. The first trip, he established the church. The second trip, he encouraged the church. And we come to chapter 2, and he decides to take a trip to Jerusalem to give a report. Now, Jerusalem was the cradle of Christianity. It's like the Vatican in Rome for the Catholics. That's what Jerusalem was. Jesus died in Jerusalem. He rose again. Pentecost happened there. The temple of Herod was still standing in Jerusalem. That wasn't destroyed until A.D. 70. Peter, James, and John, pillars of the church, were in Jerusalem. So let's read Galatians 2, 1 through 5. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter rose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
If you remember from the last two weeks, we talked about this group, the Judaizers. They followed Paul wherever he went. Paul was going around teaching freedom in Jesus Christ, where you put your faith, and by the grace of God, you're saved. You don't have to follow a list of rules. But the Judaizers were telling the people, yes, you do have to follow rules. It's Jesus Christ plus the law. So you had this confrontation here, and I'm so thankful for people like Paul who did not compromise with these Judaizers, but preached the true gospel. In Romans 10, 12-13, talking about Paul's gospel message, it says this, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's interesting, in the portion of scripture I just read, they mentioned Titus. Titus, of course, was a companion to Paul. Later, Paul would write a letter to Titus, who was a leader in the island of Crete. And the big thing was, yes, Titus was a Greek, he was a Gentile, but he had not been circumcised yet. So the question always comes up, especially as you read the book of Galatia, what's the big deal about circumcision? Why is everybody talking about circumcision? Well, for us, 2,000 years later, as a Gentile, circumcision is not a huge thing. There's really no significance, you know, some people argue the health benefits or, or lack of health benefits, but to the Jews back then, circumcision was huge. It all started in Genesis 17, back at the time of Abraham, where God came to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Many people are going to be blessed because of you. And part of this covenant, and I'm reading from Genesis 17, starting with verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. So this goes way back. It's interesting that they were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Since then, there's been some medical studies that shows that vitamin K reaches its peak on the eighth day of life. And vitamin K is important for blood clotting. So it's so interesting that so many years ago that the boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day and it matches up with medical science today. So Abraham was circumcised. Isaac was. Jacob was. Joseph. Moses was. David was circumcised. In fact, when David was considering fighting Goliath, he referred to Goliath as that 
uncircumcised Philistine because the Jews were circumcised. Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, 21, Jesus was circumcised. All the disciples were circumcised. It was the sign of a covenant that God had made with Abraham. It was very natural. It was the way of life for the Jewish people to be circumcised. The question is, why circumcision? It seems like God could have made another sign, a haircut or a tattoo. Why circumcision? Now, many people have speculated. One commentator I read this week, Why circumcision? Why circumcision as a sign? It could have been a haircut. It could have been a tattoo. One of the commentators I read, and you can only speculate on this, said this is a, a private area of a man's body. When a person is circumcised, it's only God that would know, and that man would know. Of course, eventually their spouse would know. If a Jewish man committed adultery... Uh, with a pagan woman like Samson did, they would be using that private area, that sign of a covenant between God and them, and they would use it in a dishonorable way. So it was a sign. And Christianity, in a sense, is born out of Old Testament Judaism. So the early church that was made out of Jews and Gentiles the Jews just naturally thought that everybody that belonged to the church should be circumcised. Now, can you imagine a, a church service where the preacher would say, who wants to accept the Lord? Men, come forward after they accept the Lord. Now go in the back room. I've got something else for you. That would not be good. And there was that conflict there between the Gentiles and the Jews. Back to our mission report. Paul is going to the Jerusalem church, and he has Barnabas and Titus. And Paul does not want to be a lone ranger as far as the gospel. He's been working hard, many years now, sharing the gospel. He, in a very humble way, wants to make sure that his gospel matches the same gospel that Peter, James, and John is preaching. He doesn't want any divisions. He wants unity. And he's being very proactive here. Good communication is important, that everybody is on the same page. He also wants to talk about those Judaizers. Usually when you make a biblical stand, it's against immoral people. Paul is in a situation now where he's taking a stand against strict, legal, religious people. Let's continue reading in verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. 
For God, who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they go to the circumcised. All they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I have been eager to do all along. Paul was not in awe. He respected Peter, James, and John. He had great respect for them. But he was not in awe. He did not worship them. He, he realized that they were men just like he was a man. God shows no favoritism. We read that when the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't show favoritism, and that was the problem in the early church. The Jews, hey, they considered themselves God's chosen people. And here, their members were the Gentiles. In fact, the Gentiles outnumbered the Jews. As the church continued to grow, especially in the Galatia area, there was more Gentiles, far more Gentiles than Jews. But yet the Jews, they thought, some of the Jews thought that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. As they met with these pillars, Peter, James, and John, they agreed our gospel message is the same. The pillars of the church, they also said, hey, I have no problem with Titus. Titus is fine. It's okay that he's uncircumcised. We've heard his message, and his message agrees with us. It's so, so important. One of the uh, commentaries I read, Ray Pritchard, said that salvation, agreeing on the gospel message, is a hill to die on. It's so important to be united in the gospel message. You know, if you put many Christians in the same room, you're probably going to have some disagreement in some areas. Some people lean to more a Reformed theology, Calvinism. Some lean a little bit to more an Arminianism um, or free will type of a gospel. Some people differ on the gift of speaking in tongues or healing or eternal security or the importance of baptism. But it's very important that everybody agrees on the gospel message. To have true fellowship and true unity, everyone must agree that the gospel is based on faith in Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God. It's, it's not by works. It's not by following the law. It was St. Augustine who's credited with this saying that maybe you've heard before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or charity in all things. We're not going to agree on many things. End time events is another area. We don't all agree, but we must agree on that simple gospel message. And the pillars of the church, they agreed with Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. And they also agreed that God was sending Paul to the Gentiles. 
just as God was using Peter to reach the Jews. Now, there would be some overlap. For example, Paul would often go into synagogues in every city. Peter, if you remember from the book of Acts, went over to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile. So there was some overlap, for, but for the most part, Peter was to the Jews, Paul was to the Gentiles. They had only one demand, and that is that they remember the poor. And as a church brewing Bible in the year 2020, we should remember the poor. During that time, there was a severe famine going on in Palestine. We read that in Acts 11. So not only was there a famine going on, there was a drought, but the new Christians were experiencing social and religious persecution. So Paul was very obedient, and throughout the book of Acts, throughout the epistles, you see Paul taking offerings in the Gentile churches and sending them to the Jerusalem church. We're going to go on to, uh, in Galatia, to verse 11. One commentator said, called this bad manners at the dinner table. Bad manners at the dinner table. When I read that, I thought back again to growing up. Uh, in my household, when we ate dinner, we had eight people. It was a big table. And I can't say we always had the best manners. When we passed food at our house, we literally passed food. I have memories of my mom standing at the oven, and when we had biscuits or rolls, she would take them and she would throw them to us sitting around the table. When my uh, dad would ask for to pass the salt and pepper, we actually passed through the salt and pepper. And I remember one time, I was very young, and I thought my dad asked for the salt and pepper. So I passed him the salt, he caught it, and as I was passing him the pepper, I'm letting go of the pepper, I look, and my dad's head was down. He had only asked for the salt, and he was putting salt on his food, and you guessed it, I hit him right in the head. And he was not happy. Now, you talk about a tense moment. That was tense. Because if my dad was unhappy, I would soon be unhappy minutes later. Now, this is also a tense time. Bad manners. We're going to have Peter and Paul get into an argument. Can you imagine that? It's going to be a verbal argument in public. Can you imagine hearing Paul Get mad at Peter. Well, we're going to take a look at this. And what happened is, after this missionary trip to Jerusalem, Paul returned home. But sometime later, Peter decided to take a road trip. And Peter wanted to go check on Paul. So he started to go north, and they ended up in the city of Antioch in Syria. Now, the city of Antioch, there's two Antiochs in Scripture. There's Antioch. Pisidia in Galatia area, and there was Antioch of Syria, which was a huge town. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The largest city was Rome. The second largest city was Alexandria. And the third largest city was 
Antioch. And there was a huge Gentile population, but there was also strong Jewish synagogues there. It's in Antioch that Christians, followers of the Lord, were first called Christians. It was actually the headquarters of the Gentile church. Just as Jerusalem was headquarters for the mother church, Antioch was the headquarters and was the base of Paul's ministry. So Peter is coming to town, and everybody was so excited. Can you imagine being a Christian in Antioch and having Peter visit you? This is the guy that walked on water for a couple steps. This is a guy that saw the transfiguration of Jesus. He saw Jesus turn the water into wine. He saw Jesus feed the multitudes. He talked to the risen Lord. He saw all the teachings and miracles of Jesus. So it was a very exciting time. And Peter came, and he saw the church, and he saw how the Jews and the Gentiles ate together and had fellowship. So Peter, Peter joined right in, and he had communion, which sometimes they would call love feast, and he would eat with the Gentiles. Now, you have to remember, this is huge. This is out of a comfort zone for a Jew because a Jewish person has kosher laws. You're only supposed to eat kosher food. But if you remember, there was a time in the life of Peter before he went to visit Cornelius where he had a vision of a large sheet coming down, and there was different types of animals on it. And the Lord said to eat, and the Lord said, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. So this was a very exciting time. Let's read in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas would led astray. What was happening here is Peter was eating with the Gentiles, having a great time, but eventually some Jews came from the mother church. And as soon as Peter saw them, he buckled under the pressure. He felt that, that peer pressure. And right, right away, he withdrew from the Gentiles and only hung out with the Jews. Not only that, some of the other people with Peter, they saw Peter's example. They withdrew from the Gentiles. Even Barnabas, who had a great ministry among the Gentiles, he withdrew. Once they saw the Jewish people come, the visitors, they stopped and they withdrew from the Gentiles. So Peter was acting one way with the Gentiles and a different way when the Jewish visitors came. And you know, compromise is a very important part in working out problems. But a person should never compromise their biblical convictions just for the sake of men. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. But before we pass judgment on Peter, because it's so easy to pass judgment on Peter and Barnabas here, 
We have to think back not too long ago in our nation's history, as late as the 1950s. If you were to go down south in the United States, even with large Bible-believing churches down there, you would find different drinking fountains, one for whites, one for blacks. You would find different restrooms, one for white, one for blacks. Segregated churches, one for white, one for black. And yes, things are different now, but they're not perfect. They're not perfect. We've made some progress. We still have a way to go. But the point is, all members of the body of Christ are one. They're all equal. We live in a very polarized, divisive society. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of division. God's church is the exception. Children of God are equal. And there should not be that division or bias and here, Paul has been preaching this to the churches of Galatia. And now, Peter is not really practicing what Paul has been preaching. Peter separates himself from the Gentiles when the Jews come. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Let me read verse 14 of chapter 2. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Here, Peter was compromising the truth of the gospel, and he was caught in the very act. And this really upset Paul, because he's been ministering and saying that we're all one in Christ, and yet Peter was proving by his very actions that that was not true. Later, Paul, and we'll get to this portion in a few weeks, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God shows no favoritism, and we should not either. One other warning, and again, I'm speaking from a teacher who works with junior high and high school students, and I know all about cliques. I believe we have to be careful, even in the modern-day church, that with our close friends. Yes, it's important to have close friends. That's very important. But we have to be careful that we do not become exclusive to the whole church body. We should be reaching out to the whole church body. If you would like to read more on this, I would suggest that you read James chapter 2. But Paul is very passionate about two things here. Unity in Christ and getting the gospel right. No compromise when it comes to getting the gospel right. As Ray Pritchard says, this is a hill to die on. When you get the gospel wrong, two things happen. Sinners are not saved and God does not get the glory. Let's go on to verse 15. 
We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul makes it very clear here. The law cannot save us. Recently in church at Berean, we went over the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, as we went over the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are they're a great guideline. They're, they're holy. Romans 7, 12 says the law is holy. They're very useful. They're a great standard. They're a minimum standard where we can be obedient and have fellowship with God. I say the word minimum because they emphasize the external obedience. You know, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he took the Ten Commandments and he took them up a notch. And he said that the Ten Commandments also involve the inner motives. So it involves the heart. So it's just not external obedience. It involves, But even looking at the Ten Commandments, either way, we cannot keep the Ten Commandments. The Bible goes on to say that the law is a tutor. It drives us to Jesus Christ. The law shows us that we cannot keep the law. It shows us our sin and our need for a Savior. And Paul was emphasizing here that we cannot follow a list. Let's Let's don't go back and get into this whole religion of following rules again. I've been preaching it's by faith in Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you can't keep the law. Let's just forget about it. Let's not get enslaved. I don't want to destroy what I've been preaching the last 14 years, that there's freedom in Jesus Christ. Salvation is about our faith in the Lord. And you have a choice. The choice is you can follow the law and fail, or you can have faith in Christ alone. You know, I'm, I'm so thankful this morning for this doctrine of justification. And right now I have three verses left in chapter 2. And I'm very tempted to cover them. But you know what? They're so rich and this letter is making a turn now where Paul is going to talk about justification. And we need to spend time on this doctrine of justification. It's such a great doctrine. So we're going to pick up on this next week. But all, in conclusion, all I can say is I am so thankful this morning for people like Paul who preserved the true gospel and was passionate about the true gospel that it was revealed to him by Jesus Christ and he was faithful and in revealing it to others. I'm thankful for all the people that have gone before us in our country, even before our country, where the true gospel message has been passed down. Many times at a large cost, persecution, even death. But people wanted to pass that true gospel down to us. And our challenge at Berean Bible, we need to be faithful as the church body that we proclaim the truth, 
the one true gospel as revealed in God's word, and that the Holy Spirit would empower us to be faithful to his word as time goes on. Amen, Bereans? Amen. Let's close a prayer. Dear Lord, I'm so thankful this morning for the many who have gone before us, the faith of our fathers, as the hymn puts it, that we're so faithful and passionate about proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that as Berean Bible, that as the church, Lord, that we would be in unity around the simple gospel message, that the gospel is not about following a list of rituals or traditions or rules, but the gospel is about having true faith in your son and what he did on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins, that he rose again, that he's risen and sitting at your right hand, interceding for us today. Lord, we put our faith in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we accept your forgiveness when we sin. We ask for your forgiveness, and we rest, and when we put our peace and our trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.